Uh, last week, I think it was last week, my wife and the mother of my four children, uh, our four children, Brooke, she likes to run, and um, she does a lot of uh, half marathons. I think she aims for one, one a year, something like that. I know you don't like this attention. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, and this is why. Because she'd be anticipating it, and everybody's looking at her. Stop looking at her. Stop it. So anyway, she likes to run, and so she ran in California last, I think it was last week, uh, did a half marathon there and ran through the, the big redwood trees and all that stuff. Really cool, and, and her goal is to do one in every state before uh, it's all said and done, which is a huge lofty goal. But anyway, she is a, she's a beast, as we like to say, because uh, she can run, run, run. So anyway, I say that because she likes to train in our neighborhood. We live in a, it's not a big neighborhood, but she likes to train in our neighborhood. And so when you're running, you know, six miles in our neighborhood, it means you're running the same path a lot because the neighborhood isn't six miles long. So she kind of doubles back a lot as she trains. And so she knows our neighborhood really well. She knows because of the Apple Watch, you know, distances and how far it is from this point to this point. I don't run uh, like she does, but I, I try to run every once in a while just for my heart because, um, you know, heart attack is now in my gene pool, and so I want to have a healthy heart, and so I try to get out there and run uh, when I can and when I am disciplined to do so. So that's where I run too. I run our neighborhood, and so I, I try to work myself up, and I, I started out not good at all, doing a lot of walking more than running, and so I, I set the timer at 30 minutes and try to do the best I can. And so as I've done it more and more, I, I find myself running for a longer period of time and not walking for as much of that 30 minutes. And so there's a, a longer road in our neighborhood, and I finally got to where I could run all the way down and all the way back. It is a long road. I could run the entire thing without stopping. In fact, now I can do even more than that, and it was a Kind of a big win for this guy right here, right here in my heart, of heart of hearts. So anyway, I got back home after I did this run that night, and um, I told Brooke, I was like, I, she's like, how did it go? I was like, I ran a lot, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself. I said, I ran, you know, that entire road there and back, and she said, wow, you should be proud. That's, that's great, you know, and she's not patronizing. She really believed, like, that. really, really proud of you. That's, that's great. That's a good accomplishment, and I was like, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good ways for me. What's that, like a mile and a half? It feels like it is a pretty good ways. She goes, not quite, but that's still really good, you know? I was like, how far is it? Like a mile? She's like, it's about 0 0.6 miles. <laughs> humbling. I'm in a very humbling marriage. Um, no, I can do a lot more than that now, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But here's the reason I say that. The test of the believer running this race that we call life is not how fast we run or whether or not we walk and grow weary. The test is that we keep moving forward. The test is that we are continually moving in this direction, that we are pressing on. It's an endurance race. And so even Brooke would tell you that while there may be many goals along the way and even something like a half marathon, the main thing is that you finish. Our passage this morning is the author's warning about the weariness of this race, that this race, this endurance race called life can cause us to grow weary for the believer, but the prize is that for which we press on. And so we're going to see some things this morning that are kind of hard to read and even harder to understand. And, but I want to take our time, and we're going to walk through this. And I want you to see at the end of the day that the goal here is that the author causes you to look forward, persevere, and press on for the prize that awaits us. Endurance, not necessarily running the whole way, but moving forward. We're going to see this this morning in Hebrews 10. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 24, and then uh, we're not going to read all the way to 39 quite yet. So we're going to read 24 through 31 right now. Follow along with me as I go, all right? Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider how to stir, one another, stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Four, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We'll keep going as we kind of walk through our passage this morning. But listen, I'm just going to say this up front. If we skip over the hard and the challenging passages, we will become biblically impoverished and incomplete. When I started the book of Hebrews, I didn't exactly just, I wasn't chomping at the bit for this one, all right? But there is a completion to this book that is so necessary that we see in our passage this morning. I started in verses 24 and 25 because they sort of set up what is verse 26, the one that's kind of tough to read, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? It sets up that verse, and that's why verses 24 and 25 are very important, because what the author is saying is, meet together. Don't neglect each other. Meet together. Get together, which is what we're doing right now, by the way. This is what he's talking about. Gathering together as a church family, meeting together. He says, stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another to press on. This is the implication here. Encourage one another, motivate one another to keep moving forward, to press on. Why? Verse 26, for something's coming. Judgment day is coming. Why did he say that? Because there is a tendency to drift. There is a tendency to backslide. There is even a tendency to walk away. There are a lot of people right now that are in bed that know that they need to be here. This is what he's talking about, is that there is a heart neglect if we do not Keep moving forward and press on. And we need each other to do that. Encourage one another. Stir up one another, it says. Because one day we will all face the judge. Guys, this is a warning passage. It's a warning passage. And as such, as we run this race of endurance, I think there's two things that we can take away, if you're taking notes this morning, that I want to kind of let you know about. And you can maybe absorb these things and be mindful of them in this race that we call life. And that's, number one, that we should be running the race of endurance with a healthy fear. We should run the endurance race with a healthy fear. Healthy may not be the word that comes to mind when you think about fear. You may think, I don't need to be afraid of anything. No, but hold on. There is something, sort of a a healthy fear that we see in God's word. Fearing God, right? We we read about this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I mean, there's a lot to be said in the Proverbs about fearing God. And so I want to begin this morning as we walk through our passage with a healthy fear, which is the fear of the Lord. In verse 10, <coughs> verse 10, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 26, there's a word that you're gonna, we're going to read in just a moment that says, in my translation, the ESV, deliberately. The Greek word that's translated deliberately is actually, and this is neat, this is actually the first word of the sentence, the word deliberately. It's the first word of the Greek sentence. Why does that matter? Because it's the emphasis of the author. The very first word of the sentence is deliberately. What he's saying is, do not apathetically treat rejection of God's will as a non-issue of little consequence. 
Don't treat it as like it's not a big deal. Like, oh, grace abounds. No, rejection of God and his design and his will and his desire for your life is a huge deal, even for those that profess Christ. And this is the spirit of verse 26 and what follows. Look at verse 26 with me. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, meaning receiving the good news of the gospel, kind of hearing that and taking that in, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's talking about Jesus, obviously. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's supposed to sound very weighty. Verse 26 has put a lot of unnecessary doubt in the hearts of many Christians. I had a conversation with a young lady this week that talked about this verse and how even as a young child, it scared her to death and she had lots of doubts and fears about that verse. But I'm going to tell you that that's misunderstanding why that verse is there for a Christian. Remember that this passage isn't first about us, and it shouldn't be overcomplicated. The emphasis is not just on sinning. The emphasis is on sinning deliberately. And you may think, well, isn't all sin deliberate? Most, pretty, pretty much all sin is deliberate. I, I usually choose to sin. And, and you're right. Pretty much every sin, just about, there may be some sins of ignorance, but just about every time that you willfully sin, you do it willfully. You sin deliberately, right? The context is that Jewish people who'd received the gospel, made a profession of faith, were tempted to return to the old way, to return to the the Levitical cultish things, which had become cultish at this point because God is saying those things are no more. We're, we're into a new covenant in the name of Jesus. Do they want to return to those things? And if they return to those things, here's what they were doing. They were outright rejecting Jesus. Deliberately. It's a very stern term. To reject or to go back to the old way was to outright reject Jesus and say, he's not the way. This other thing is the way. They're rejecting the work of Christ. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that if you reject, simple, this is not overcomplicated. If you reject the only way that one can be forgiving, forgiven, you won't find forgiveness anywhere else. That's simple, right? If you, forget, if you reject the one way, then you won't find forgiveness anywhere else. Which is why he says in verses 28 and 29, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment Going back to Jesus, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Here's what he's doing. He's comparing or contrasting rejecting God's law in the Old Testament with rejecting Jesus in the New. Rejecting God's law in the Old Testament, rejecting Jesus in the New. He's arguing from the lesser, which has strong punishment, to the greater, the word in verse 28 for set aside, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses. That word for set aside in English, it doesn't sound like a big deal, right? It's like if I were to take my child and set them aside, you're like, oh, that was very gentle, right? But the Greek word for set aside is not a, a gentle word. It should not be understood merely as a violation against the law of Moses, against the Old Testament. It was a simple setting aside of the law. This is a special kind of rejection. Listen, every Israelite transgressed the law. Every one of them, it, even deliberately. Every Israelite rejected the law, transgressed the law. Even Moses and David and the prophets, they all sinned. They transgressed the law. But the death penalty that it's talking about in verse 28 was given to those who egregiously violated what the law mandated. To paraphrase, it's what they said in their heart. They would say, I don't give a rip what the scriptures say or the God who gave them. 
And the death penalty was reserved for that type of rejection, sinning deliberately. This is the heart of the verse here. The author's point is that blatant disregard, disdain of the Son of God would be met with an even more severe punishment than just an earthly death. He breaks it down in three categories, and they all are just so tip-top of nasty. He says, number one, it's, it's trampling underfoot the Son of God. It's a word that would be used in their culture, their history, of, of going into a place of worship and desecrating it. Jesus turned over some tables for that reason, right? Of outraging God by going into a place of honor and holiness and, and making it a place of, of just gross and vile nastiness and trampling it underfoot. He says to reject Jesus is to do that to Jesus, to desecrate him. He then says, profanes the blood. It means reckoning his blood, Jesus' blood, as defiled. To reject Jesus is to reckon his blood as worthless. The word for profane refers to what is unclean. Now, compare that to what we've already seen in the book of Hebrews. The author has said that Jesus' blood eternally redeems, cleanses the conscience, removes sin, grants access to God, sanctifies, secures forgiveness. What the author is saying is, if they do not seek purification by his blood, they reject his blood as unclean. Listen, to give you a word picture, tossing it aside, profaning it, tossing it aside as one would throw away a menstrual cloth into the garbage. That's severe and heavy language. And to the author, that's what it means to reject Jesus, is to treat his blood that he poured out as filth. He then says, it's insulting the spirit of grace. The spirit's offer of grace, it's rejecting him. They lived in an honor and shame culture, and I don't have time to get into the complexities of what that looks like in the Middle East. It's still that way, by the way, an honor and shame culture. But in this, imagine this. Imagine that you're in a crowd of friends and family, and your dad walks up to you, and he gives you, he delivers in his hands for you a birthday cake, and as a result, you curse him out while you turn it up and smack it into his face. The gift has been given And you don't just reject it, but you dishonor the offerer. That doesn't just sound like little white lies, does it? Deliberate sinning is in a special category of rejection of God. To insult the Spirit was a horrific sin. And so here's why I want to kind of put what we're talking about this morning in that framework, is because the warning here, it isn't about a professing Christian who still struggles with sin, or even has wrestled with one sin for a long time, even sinning on purpose or deliberately. The fact that you're here today with some sort of God-honoring intention is proof that you are not the deliberate sinner described here. Does that make sense? The fact that you are desiring to honor God in some capacity. You may think, oh man, I've had a hard week. Yeah, but you didn't trample Jesus underfoot. You didn't profane and throw away his blood like it was a menstrual rag, and you didn't smack God in the face with your dishonor. Does that make sense? So when we read this, don't immediately think, oh, I sin deliberately. Is he talking about me? We all sin deliberately, and yet we're not all given the judgment, the condemnation, because we are covered by grace. My point is to say, this thing that the author is talking about here is a special class of rejection of God. And the fact that you're here today tells me that this is not talking about anybody in this room, okay? It's not talking about anybody in this room, but the warning is that professing Christ doesn't mean that you can't be the person he's describing here. Because he's writing to people that profess Christ. And the reality is, 
that many will drift. It's not teaching that you can lose your salvation. I mean, goodness, back in chapter 10, verse 22, he literally just used the words, draw near with full assurance of faith. He just said full assurance. The passage is teaching that people can have, instead, spiritual experiences. They can be on spiritual highs and remain lost. That's why he says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you can have an emotional experience where you feel like you found God or God found you, that it is possible to go to summer camp or revival and have the spiritual thing happen and be lost. Just be sensationalism. That it's possible to hear the word of God and profess to be a believer and be part of the church gathering, have your name on a Sunday school roll, serve, teach a class, and yet turn away. It's a warning. Under pressure, persecution, or just when distracted by the allure of the world, many will go back to the world. Not because they're losing their salvation, but because it was proven that they never really had it. Not long ago, we talked about the, the parable of the four soils, right? This is a good analogy. And again, I'm not going to go into that right now. But there are many different ways that we see this take place. And the warning is to be certain that you're not one of them. And so again, when you read a verse like that, you may be tempted to feel introspective or retrospective, looking back at your life and saying, well, did I or, or was I or have I? But please hear me say this. The purpose of a warning is not to look back The purpose of the warning is to be mindful as you look forward, right? You're not, you don't, looking back is not the aim of a warning. Mindfully looking forward is the aim of a warning. You wouldn't want me to give you a warning about something after the peril has already passed, would you? You'd want it on this side of the danger. Uh, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, we were at a buddy of mine's birthday party. And um, I'll just say his name, it's Zach. He's probably going to come back and watch this because I'm going to tell him I'm I'm telling you this story. Uh, we were at his birthday party. Zach is, and I know you're going to hear this, Zach, so I'm just going to say it. He's, a, he's an aggressive guy. All right? like he's like a, comes on really strong. Like we played intramural basketball together, and he played like extremely physically. He wasn't the kind of guy you wanted on the other team. He was the guy you wanted on your team. You didn't know anybody like that? This is Zach. He's very high energy and very passionate. And so for his birthday party, the guy that was sort of organizing it, his name is Jake. Jake wanted to do something really special to, to fit into Zach's personality. And so we got him, a, or he got him a pinata. We're going to blindfold him. It was a surprise. And so he's like, Zach, we have a surprise for you. We're going to take you outside. We have a pinata for you. And so he took out a bandana and he blindfolded him. And Zach was just giddy with excitement. And we lived in Louisville, Kentucky. And so he gave him a little tiny Louisville slugger bat. You know, one of those little guys. And it's, it's imagine like King Kong swinging this, this microphone stand is what it looked like. It's just a little bitty stick, you know, like this. And there's a video. It's probably going to be on your Facebook feed today. Um, and so... You can hear Zach talking. The bandana is tied around him. You can't see anything, and you can, you can see that Jake is sort of leading him. Well, the thing is that the piñata was tied to a low-hanging tree, and it was, it was very low-hanging, and so you can hear Zach. He's doing this, and he says, don't let me hit the branch. Don't, don't let me hit the tree. He's kind of saying this thing. Tell me if I need to duck is what you can hear him say, and so he, he then gets the bat, and he gets to the piñata, and he starts swinging this thing uncontrollably, and it just is really funny to watch because it's a very short bat. He's got to be like point blank to even hit it. And so eventually he actually hits the string that it's hanging on, and you see the piñata go tumbling to the ground, and somebody grabs it and kind of throws it over beneath his feet, and um, he, they start to kind of lead him towards it. 
And Tracy is the one who goes and steps in to lead him towards it. And she grabs him by the hand and says, it's over here. And she's looking this way, pulls him this way. And then he just smokes his head right here on the branch. And you can see him recoil. The tree didn't really move. It was pretty temporary or pretty stationary. And so you can see him recoil and immediately you can see the blood. Like, I mean, it's immediate. And then someone, you can hear somebody in the background say, your head's bleeding. And he just keeps on going because he's a bull in a china shop. And so he gets over this thing. He's like, am I over it? And then you just see him. They're like, beat it. And he goes, boom, boom, boom. He starts to beat it. And then candy goes everywhere. The thing is, after it happened, you can hear, sorry, there's, there's a, br- a branch. <laughs> he knows, right? That's, that's a bad warning. Why? It's too late, right? The warning. So the, the point is, in fact, it was just stupid to give a warning at that point, right? When do you want a warning? You want it on the other side of the conflict when you can actually still do something about it. This is why I say that. There's nothing you can do with a warning looking back. The author of Hebrews today isn't wanting you to be introspective and look back at your life in retrospective and think, was I, did I, have I? Why would the author of Hebrews issue a warning? Not to look backward, but that they would be mindful as they look forward. Why does this verse exist? Not for you to doubt. For you to persevere. For you to be mindful. As you go forward, walk with Jesus. John 15, 8 is a great verse to be mindful of in this. Jesus said, this is when he's talking about being the vine and the branches. It says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Emphasis on that last part. Working backwards from that, the absence from fruit should be concerning to one who professes to be a believer. There's a big difference. I said this back in Hebrews chapter 6. There's a big difference between a professor and a possessor. There's a big difference between somebody who just says with their mouths, I belong to him, and someone that truly possesses the Spirit of God in a life-changing and transformative way. We should self-evaluate, but not as we look back, as we look forward and say, will I continue? Will I persevere? Will I endure? Will I keep moving forward? Guys, falling away, drifting, that doesn't happen overnight. That does not happen overnight. That is a decision that is made over weeks, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, after month after month after year. That's why some, many, many drifted during COVID and they have not returned. Because that drift is gradual. And it, what began as a good excuse became a bad habit, became a hardened heart, became forsakenness. And no one thinks that it can happen to them. No one thinks, it might be me one day. Everyone in this room, you don't think, yeah, it might be me one day. I may be the one that walks away. No one thinks that way. It drifts day by day, weekly, continuously, but slowly. It's gradual. Guys, we all grew up with people perhaps who sat across the room from us in youth group or Sunday school who are now posting about how evil organized religion is and blaming Christianity for wars and wishing that people would just shut up about Jesus, calling Christians bigots who wish the church would just be destroyed. And they may have grown up in your youth group. I can testify to that. That's why he says in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, to gather to get in one another's personal lives, to encourage each other, because judgment is coming. 
because it's real. We don't get to isolate ourselves. For our good, we don't isolate ourselves. You know, I've had several of you on on multiple occasions say to me that you appreciate that I don't preach um, hellfire and brimstone, to use an old term, right? I appreciate that you don't just get up there and, and yell at us about how bad we are, and you don't preach hellfire and brimstone, you preach grace. To which I always say, are you sure? Like, if, you, if you're going to preach grace, you, you kind of have to preach sin. I mean, that's, that's, that's the whole reason grace exists. And I appreciate the sentiment, and, I, and you're right, I do preach the love and grace of God. But let's look at verses 30 and 31. Look at this. It says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And you talk about a terrifying verse, 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Y'all, there's no cutting corners on that verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not what you hear a lot of time from guys like me. We talk about God's love and God's grace, and we should. But there is a a terrible myth in our culture and in Christianity culture, the, the Bible Belt culture, that is that the message that God is love means that God doesn't punish sin. And, and mega churches multiply because of that message. God is love, God is love, God is love. What do you do with a verse like that? It says back in verse 27 that God is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think that fear is the best motivator for repentance. I don't think that fear is the best motivator for perseverance. I would rather focus on the intimacy with God. I would rather focus on the love of God. And I don't want to manipulate. I don't, I don't like to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to manipulate you to making some decision or whatever, but that's not what I'm trying to do here. There is no getting around it. The fear in this passage, is a motivation. It is the author's motivation because you can only understand grace in the context of wrath. You can only understand mercy in the context of justice. That's what makes the gospel so outrageous is because you do deserve wrath. You do deserve a swift hand of justice against you because you are a sinful human being. But that's what makes the gospel so amazing is that God went in our place and bore the wrath reserved for you so that you could just receive his grace. Isn't that profound? That's the gospel. That's the message that we need to hear today. So yeah, I do preach grace, but you're not listening if you think that I don't preach the reality of sin. Because you can't have the first without the, the latter. And it only beautifies the grace of God. A healthy fear. Because God is a consuming fire of judgment. And for everyone everywhere, please hear this. Either God's judgment will find you or God's grace will. And that's your decision. Either God's judgment will find you or God's grace will. And today you can choose the latter. We run with a healthy fear. We also run for a better possession, number two. We run for a better possession. To summarize where we've been the last uh, couple weeks, last week we were encouraged (laughs) 
So that's why you're getting this today. <laughs> last, last week we were really encouraged in verses 19 through 25. He, he gave these draw near and, and, and hold fast and, draw, and come together and all these great things about the confidence that we have to draw near to God. And man, what a word of encouragement. And then right after that, right after verse 25, he then gives them a sobering word of warning, which we just looked at in verses 26 through 31. But now he's going to turn and he's going to summon this audience to remember and rekindle the flame of zeal, passion, fervor for the Lord. And I wanted to end with this way. I really didn't want to end with verse 31, so we're just going to keep going. Man, this is really good stuff. 32 through 39. I love, I love, I love this. Look at verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days. Man, remember who he's talking to. He says, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Warning! But then he says, don't you remember? Remember, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, received that knowledge of the truth, the gospel, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully, please hear this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Man, it's crazy. The likely context here, again, written to Jewish Christians, is that the pressure of tradition, Old Testament tradition, or their culture, or threats, or persecution, had made pressing on harder than just going with the grain. The culture is moving this way, and man, it's a lot easier to just go with the grain. And it hurts to go against it. That's a relevant word today, right? Yeah? Okay, wouldn't it be easier for all of us if we just kind of went with the culture? A lot less blowback, a lot less hardship, a lot less suffering, a lot less ridicule. But God doesn't call us to go with the grain of the culture. He calls us to go against it. Jesus said the world's going to hate you because it hated me first. When you have tribulations, remember that I had them first going against the grain of the culture then and now. It had heavy consequences then. It says public reproach, public affliction. It says it happened to their partners too up there in verse 33. Maybe it's meaning their spouses. Maybe it means their brothers or sisters, their cousins, their friends. It says that many of their friends were even imprisoned for the gospel's sake, which means this is probably on the other side of empire-wide, Roman empire-wide persecution. And so you're talking about people being imprisoned, perhaps even martyred. People even stole their property. Did you see that in verse 34? For calling themselves Christians, for being a believer, people plundered their property. They busted up in their house because they were Christians and they stole things from them. And what did the Christians do as a result? A joy. If that didn't bother you, you're not listening. That's, that's weird, right? A joy in the face of people ransacking their homes simply because they identified with Jesus. That's against the grain, isn't it? Joy. Why? It says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, meaning the stuff that people stole, it's going to perish anyway. But they had a different possession that was going to last forever. They had joy because they clung loosely to the possessions on earth, but tightly to the possession in heaven, a greater possession, an abiding possession. The word for better there, better possession, is the same word for greater that we've seen throughout the whole book and why we titled this whole walk through Hebrews, greater. 
They were willing to be rejected by men. Looking back, he says in verse uh, 32, recall the former days. Meaning, there were, you've already dealt with hard things. When, when you were on a high, when you were, had a lot of zeal for the Lord, you dealt with struggles. You were willing to be rejected by men, even if it meant being embraced and honored by God. Guys, listen. We must be willing to be rejected by men if it means being honored by God. So it says in verses 35 and 36, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He's talking about eternal glory, confidence going back to verse 19 through 21. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He says, therefore, don't throw it away. What the author is saying is don't take the easy way out and lose everything. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What does it matter if you gain everything here and lose the thing that is eternal? You gain notoriety and lose the reward. You gain a reputation and you lose heaven. You gain friends. You gain likes. You gain followers. You gain whatever but you lose the only embrace of the one that is eternal. Church, we will necessarily be countercultural. Can I just say something? You got to pick a side, man. You got to pick a side. In a culture that is heading this way and a cross that calls us to head in a different way, we cannot continue to be winsome and attractive to the culture and say, oh, we're actually, we're not so bad. We're, we're like you. Don't, we're not, don't treat us like the weird ones. We're the weird ones. You got to pick a side. Fellowship, under my leadership, I'm going to make you a promise. I promise you that we will be willing to be rejected by the culture to be accepted by God. We will be, as a church, willing to be rejected by the culture to be accepted by God. If that means that we have different views on sexuality, then we're going to have different views on sexuality. If it means that we have different views on gender roles, then we're going to have different views on gender roles. If it means that we have different views on when the life begins and when it's sanct, then it means that we're going to have different views about that. We have to be unapologetically countercultural when God's word calls us to do that. We have to be. Because we can only be so winsome. At the end of the day, we're the weird ones. The gospel. And, and look, there's a way to hold the line in the culture without being a punk. There's a way to hold the line in our culture on things like sexuality and LGBTQ related things. There's a way to hold the line and be loving and not be a jerk. The gospel never bids you go and be mean-spirited and be unkind, but it may bid you go and be offensive. Because God's worldview is now an offensive against the world's worldview and you and I will suffer for it. We just will. Because we have to choose a side. You may think everyone has this thing. Well, maybe you won't. Everyone does this thing. Well, maybe you won't do it. Everyone says these things. Well, maybe you're not called to. We have to be countercultural. We have to pick a side. The gospel is offensive. And we need to be okay with that. And that may feel discouraging. You may feel like you're going to be isolated. You may be. You think, well, I have a life. I have to give my life to this. I only live once. And I've got to give my life. I've got to choose to suffer if I'm going to be on this team my entire life. 
I mean, my life. We need to give, be given some perspective about that word life. When literally all you know is this life, it's hard to be mindful of the future possession. That's why he says next, a little while. We're almost done. 37 through 39. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a reference to Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. You see the comparison, right? Faith versus shrinking back like a coward. God's pleasure versus God's judgment. Preservation eternally versus eternal destruction. The message is very simple. Don't waste your life. It is your life. Don't waste it. He uses that word, a little while. And again, I'll just say, when literally all you know is this life, it's hard to be mindful of the future possession. I heard an illustration one time from a guy named Francis Chan. You may know who that is. So this is not original to me, but I, I saw this 15 years ago probably, and he did it probably more like 25 ago. Um, but he had a rope, and he, he kind of unraveled it, and so I'll, I'll do that. And I want you to just pretend that this rope goes on forever. It won't. There's an end to it, obviously. It, it goes on pretty long, though. So I want you to pretend that this rope just kind of goes on forever. I mean, look, it's, 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 it's pretty long. It goes down there, and... There's a little part on the end of this rope that's, that's red. And pretending that this rope goes on forever, this rope represents your life, okay? It represents your life. And again, it has an end, but imagine that it just goes on and goes on and goes on forever. But this rope is your timeline. It's your existence. And it starts right here. The red part is your time on earth. A few short years on earth, and then the rest is heaven, Here's the thing. So many of us are completely consumed with what happens right here. You think, well, this is my life. This is everything. Isn't that crazy? To, this is, isn't this a crazy word picture? That this is everything? And so because this is everything, we're so consumed with only thinking that this is all that there is. We work hard and we work hard for more money and more things and we save and we build the memories and we, we travel and we do all the things so that we can really, really enjoy this. But how we live in this little red part determines how we will live for all of that, what do you think? How long is this, really? This is a little while, right? And man, we give everything to this. It's an endurance race. The apostles understood this. That's why they died in this part. They were willing to be martyred in this part because they understood that there's so much more. There is a better possession that awaits us. Guys, you get one chance at the red part. You get one chance. Don't waste it. There is forgiveness through one, 
There is purpose through one. There is hope through one. And it's not in all the junk. It's not in the goods. It's not in the services. It's not in the vacations. It's not in traveling. It's not in cars. It's not in a home. It's not in family. It's not in work. It's not in money. It's not in building that bank account. It's not in entertainment. It's not in sports. It's not in your your kids. It's not in media. It's not in your cell phone. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this that lasts? Because we think that this is all there is right here. But we are fools to not see the bigger picture. It's an endurance race. And listen, in this part, you may be running. You may have a lot of wind in you. You may have a lot of energy. And you're running well. Praise God for that. You may be walking. And you're tired. You're like, I just need to catch my breath. I'll get it back. You may be limping, injured. You may be weary, absolutely exhausted. My encouragement to you is to keep moving forward. The test is not your time, the test is not how long you run, the test is whether or not you finish the race. What are you going to do with this little red part? Because I know that there are people in this room that do feel weary. And Mother's Day may be a reminder of that weariness. I know there are people in this room that feel broken and fractured. And I want you to know, you don't have to do it alone. For one thing, you have the Lord. But going back to what has set up this entire passage in the first place, you have a church family. That's why he says, draw near to one another. Let us gather. Let us encourage one another. Stir up one another. So I'll tell you this, and I'll just end it this way. As you run your race, my prayer is that you will do it with a healthy fear. Not to be scared of God, but to understand where you'd be without him. To understand who you'd be without the saving work of Jesus. That there is forgiveness in no other. And you may be striving and trying and trying to find hope in all the other places. But I'm here to just tell you, give it up. You will find hope in no other place than in the arms of Jesus. You may be enamored by everything that happens in this place right here. Obsessed with the world, falling in love with the allure. And it's a dangerous and slippery slope. May you come, surrender your life to Jesus anew, and make what happens right here worth what happens in the rest.